If you have a Bible, go ahead and uh, turn with us to the passage that Mel just read for us. It's 1 John chapter 2, uh, verses, we'll be in verses 28 through chapter 3, verse 10. Uh, if you're not familiar with your Bible, that's going to be pretty much all the way at the end. The last epistles of John come right before uh, Jude and then Revelation, so towards the end of your Bible there. So this morning, uh, John is posing a question, and the question we're going to start with this morning is this, who are you? When was the last time you were asked the question, who are you? For most of us, probably has been quite a while, if ever maybe, right? We get asked the question, what's your name? What do you do for work? Where do you live? Where do you come from? Right? But when was the last time somebody actually just put you on the spot and said, who are you? Even more interesting, I think, is how we might respond. What do you say to that? Right? Where do you even start? I think most of us would probably start with the basics, right? Like, what, what is true about me? What kind of knowledge can I give about myself that might give you some kind of a clue as to who I am? So I'm going to tell you my name, right? Evan Hendricks, right? I'm going to tell you maybe a few things about me, my address, my email, my phone number, right? If you think about it, most of the surveys or the forms that we fill out that are trying to get at the heart of who we are, who is this person, they ask these very questions, right? Every survey starts with name, address, age, birth date, occupation, email, favorite ice cream, right? The list goes on and on. They want knowledge about you, but is this who you are? The next thing that a lot of us likely turn to is probably the things that we have, the things that are our own, right? Because for so many of us, the things that, that we have in our possession help shape our identity, help shape who we are. Maybe it's the clothes that we wear, right? We live in Bend, so everybody and their brother has a Patagonia jacket, right? That's part of what it means to live in Bend is to have a puffy. Still need to get one of those. <laughs> right? If you live in Bend, then part of your identity might be a Subaru, right? They're everywhere. Most of us have two, right? Because they're just so darn reliable, Maybe part of what defines who we are is where we live, right? Our home, our safety, our security, the place of refuge that we return to, the place that we invite people into to share ourselves with them. Surely our home helps define some of who we are, right? Maybe for some of us, it's more the clubs or the groups that we participate in, right? We live in Oregon, so it's a constant battle, right? Beaver, duck, beaver, duck. I went to UC Davis. I'm an Aggie, a farmer, I guess. I don't, beaver duck, right? So the sports teams that we root for, maybe the colleges that we attended. Maybe for some of us, it's the clubs that we're a part of, right? Every day when I drive home, to and from anywhere in town, I drive by the Elks Club. Any Elks Club members? I never really know what they're doing in there, but it always looks super cool, man. They're usually barbecuing and having a good time. Finally, for a lot of us in Bend, right, we live here because we love all of the restaurants. Jackson's Corner, like, you will find me in there at least once a week. I love the place. I love 
everything about Jackson's Corner. I love being known as, as a local at Jackson's Corner. It's part of what shapes and defines who I am, what I value, the kind of food I like, how I like to eat, where I like to eat, right? These are all things that are shaping who we are. So the Barna Group did this study a few years ago, and they polled Americans at large, and they asked Americans, what is the top factor in shaping your identity, this question of who you are. And this is how we responded. Family, 62%. 62% of who I am or of what we said is our family. Some of you are like, yes, I love my family. Some of you are like, oh my gosh, family, right? Nationality, 52%. The fact that I'm an American, 52%. Religious faith drops significantly down to 38%, followed by ethnicity and career, then the state that I live in, the fact that I'm an Oregonian, and then finally the city. I'm from Bend. I'm a Bendite, right? So basically, what the Barna Group is showing us is that we are who we associate with, who we spend time with. Do we spend time with our family? Do we spend time with fellow Americans? Do we spend time with fellow Christians, fellow followers of Jesus? Do we spend time with people of the same ethnic background? I'm just a mix of so many, so I never know who to hang out with, right? Do we spend time with the people that we work with? The Barna Group is trying to say that we, that we are who we are because of who we associate with. This is called our social identity. Webster's defines it like this, social identity is the portion of an individual's self-concept derived from perceived membership in a relevant social group. Author and speaker Jim Rohn is famous for saying this, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And why is this? Why is it that the people we spend time with shape who we are, that they're actually the, the five people that we spend the most time with actually make up the average of who we are? That's significant, but you think about it. The people we spend time with, they control so much of what we are participating in, right? The conversations that we're a part of, the movies that we watch, the restaurants that we eat at, what's cool, what's not, what's approved by your family, your friends. What we are about is shaped by the people that we spend time with. Psychologists actually say that up to 95% of our personality is shaped by the closest people in our lives. 95%. Like, I don't know physically what that looks like, but maybe like my left foot is my own to shape. But the rest of me, like, you guys are shaping. Psychologists are saying that to spend time with someone is to be shaped by them. So it stands the reason that the next question, of course, is what? Who do we spend time with? If psychology is saying that we are who we know, then who do we know? Because if Jim Rohn is right, if I'm the average of the five people I spend the most time with, then the question is who are the five people? A better question for the sake of this morning's conversation, the fact that here we are in church together as followers of Jesus, does Jesus make the top five? 
This isn't a guilt trip. It's just an honest barometer, an honest gut-level question. If you are the conglomeration of the five people you spend the most time with, is Jesus one of the five? Does he even make the list? Here's the thing. I'm not asking this question. This is the question that I believe John is posing to us. In verse 29 of the second chapter, this is what he says. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right is born of him. Now, I don't think what John is doing here is questioning the righteousness of Jesus. He's not saying if, if, if Jesus is righteous. He's saying if you know that Jesus is righteous. Do you know that Jesus is righteous? Not if you have knowledge about his righteousness. Not if you know that Jesus was a really good guy who did some really good things. Do you know that Jesus is righteous because you've spent time with him, witnessing his righteousness, witnessing his love for us? Do you spend time with Jesus, witnessing his righteousness? This is the question that John is asking, and I think it's a huge question, and I think it's a bold question. Maybe you came in here this morning and that wasn't the question you were expecting to be asked, right? It kind of goes without saying, if you're in church on a Sunday morning, you know Jesus. John is writing this letter to his church. And he's asking, do you know Jesus? Kind of one of those heady theological questions, right? How do I know, how do I know Jesus, Evan? Come on. What are we talking about here? This is where we move from the theological to the practical. This is where we move from using words to talk about God to talking about what does it mean to actually know God practically, tangibly, to touch, feel, taste, experience as a human might. Well, the reality that I think Jesus teaches us throughout the Gospels, throughout his life and ministry is that to know Jesus is to do some very simple things, things called spiritual disciplines. There's that word again, discipline. So you can't get away from it. It's so annoying. Discipline. But what is discipline, right? If we are disciples of Jesus, then discipline is to teach. So if discipline is to teach and we are disciples, then our job is to, anyone? To learn. Right? So how do we learn? How do we learn about who Jesus is? How do we spend time with him? Well, the first one, read scripture. Right? We all learn this in Bible school. Like for me, this was like five years old, earliest memories. I have a picture of my, my Bible school teacher up there saying, read your Bible every day. Right? And I nodded every day. Of course. Right. Sure. Yep. But this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying that to know him is to know his word. So do we read our Bibles? Do we study our Bibles? Do we meditate on the word of God? Do we memorize the word of God? Do we let the word of God shape our understanding of who he is? Do we let it comfort us when we're in pain? Do we let it encourage us when we're doubting? Do we let it exhort us when we're living in right relationship. To know Jesus is to know his word. Second, to pray. 
Not rocket science, not anything new, right? We're all sitting here this morning going, yep, read my Bible, pray. Read my Bible, pray. Been hearing this now for so long. But the question that that gets thrown around our culture so much, maybe not so much today, but certainly at least while I was in high school and then through the college years, was the bracelet, right? Right? What would Jesus do? And we all latched on to what would Jesus do in this situation? What would Jesus do? It's a pretty good thought. I think a better question that we can ask ourselves is what did Jesus do? We don't have to ask the question of what would he do? He gave us his word. And in his word, we see that what did Jesus do? Jesus prayed without ceasing, constantly, in every scenario, in every situation. Jesus prayed at meals. Jesus prayed at weddings. Jesus prayed at funerals. Jesus prayed to raise people from the dead. He prayed on his own. He prayed while his disciples were sleeping, right? Jesus prayed continually. Over 25 times in the Gospels, we get vivid descriptions of Jesus praying. And in John 8, 28, Jesus says this himself. He says, I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. I speak just what the Father has taught me. Jesus isn't claiming original thought here. Jesus is revealing his dependence on his prayer life with his Father. I spend time in conversation with my Father so that I know his word, so that I know his will, so that I know that what he would have me do. So to know Jesus is to pray. Not only that, the disciples, right, who walked with him for three years, day in and day out, literally depending on Jesus to provide things like food and shelter. Like they depended on Jesus for everything. And after three years of watching Jesus day in and day out do these miracles and live as God among them, even after three years, they didn't know how to pray. And so they literally just asked Jesus, Jesus, teach us to pray, will you? It's been three years. I can't imagine what his response would have been right there, but I have to laugh a little bit of like, really? I've been praying in front of you constantly. So here, say this. And we have the Lord's Prayer where Jesus simply says, say this. This is what it looks like to pray. This is what it looks like to know me, to converse with me, to converse with the Father. The last thing that we do in this pursuit of knowing Jesus, this is the kicker for me. Because this is the one that Jesus says, if you love me, you keep my commands. To know Jesus is to obey his commands. In John 15, 9 through 10, Jesus again specifically states, he says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. Just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. To remain in the love of the Father, Jesus is saying, I have to obey his commands. What is it about obedience that is so hard for us? Here's another question. What is it that Jesus even commands? As followers of Jesus, what is it that we're supposed to do? If to follow Jesus, to know Jesus, is to obey his commands, then what exactly does Jesus command? Maybe some of us know, some of us don't, but in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, he says this, when asked 
by someone else, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus is saying the greatest commandment is to love God. The second is like it. Love people. Jesus is talking about right relationship here. This idea of being right relationship with God and right relationship with one another. Another way of saying this would be the word righteousness. How does that word sit with you? Righteousness. Do you ever want someone to say, man, you're a really righteous person? Like, is, that, is anybody comfortable with that? I know for me that makes my skin crawl. Like, oh, don't say that. Don't say that. Does that word carry baggage? Is it pretentious? This idea of kind of goody two-shoes, being the best of the best of the best, right? How about this? What if righteousness, this idea of right relationship, what if it was simply buying a friend a cup of coffee? What if righteousness were taking a meal to someone in need? Maybe a new family who has a newborn and has absolutely no idea what to do, let alone can figure out how to make dinner. What if righteousness were simply bringing a roasted chicken and some veggies and saying, I love you? What if righteousness were sitting with a friend who's hurting? Having the courage to just sit in the midst of pain. Not to say anything, not to do anything just to be present. What if righteousness were helping a friend with yard work? The last one for me hits home because I'm so bad at this. What if righteousness were simply doing what you said you were going to do? That is so hard for me. There's so many things I want to do that I end up not doing any of it. And Lindsay just keeps me so focused on it. It's great. Wives are such a gift. <laughs> Single men, listen to that. Wives are a gift of righteousness. So this talk of righteousness, why all this talk of righteousness? Why this focus on like this idea of acting righteous, of being righteous? What is it that John is getting at here? The reality is that I believe John is listing this as the litmus test of what it means to actually know Jesus. Are you righteous? Are you in right relationship? Do you actually love people? In verse 7 of 1 John chapter 3, he says this, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. That seems pretty clear to me. Jesus himself says in John 13, 35, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. So real quick, just to recap where we've been so far. So you're saying that to know Jesus, I have to read my Bible every day. 
I have to pray without ceasing. And I have to perfectly love everyone I know. Sound fun? I have to ask, like, John, hey, is there another option here? Is there, like, some middle ground where I can just kind of hang out in and, like, roll under everything? And John says, sure, I got another option for you. The very next verse. He says, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil. Because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. I personally don't like to be black and white. I'm like a huge fan. There are so many shades of gray. Like, it's an amazing color, so versatile. But John here is not. John is very much of the black and white category, right? Truth, light, love, hate, sin, righteousness, Jesus, devil. And this is John speaking. The disciple that arguably knew Jesus the best, spent the most time with Jesus, was the most intimate, knew him the closest. And this is what John is saying. He's saying to not follow Jesus is the other option. But to not follow Jesus is to do the work of the devil. That's like the worst word to hear on Sunday mornings. It just, ah, the devil, the devil. Just so many bad images in my mind from cartoons as a child. But, but that's what John is saying here. It's to do the work of the devil, to do what is sinful. To instead of practicing right relationship, to practice breaking relationship. To literally seek to destroy everything that is good in your life. And the last part of that verse, to not follow Jesus, is to be against his work. John says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So if I'm doing the work of the devil, that means I'm up against Jesus, God Almighty, God incarnate, come to earth, all power, raises people from the dead. Not a guy I want to be against, man. But I'm going to be honest, if we go back to the recap... Right? Read your Bible every day, pray without ceasing, and perfectly love everyone I know. That's still not something I necessarily want to do. It's certainly not something I can do. I can't do it. I look out at all of you, and I know so many of your faces. There's some I don't know. And I want to love all of you so well. But chances are, if you've known me for longer than a day, I probably have already failed you. Maybe you knew it, maybe you didn't. I want to love you, but I just can't. I don't have that kind of capacity. I don't have that kind of power. The beauty of this, the beauty of knowing Jesus is that he's the one person that promises, if you know me, I will give you my spirit. I don't need you to do anything on your own. In fact, what I need you to do is stop trying to do it on your own. Give up. Submit. Simply pursue knowledge of me, time with me, and I will give you my spirit to indwell you, to transform you, to renew your mind, to change your values, to allow you to actually love 
He says this in John. He says, if you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. The gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying, it's not about what you can do for me. It's not even about what you think you can do for you. It's about the fact that you and I are united. We are one. Through the power, through the indwelling of my spirit, we become joined. So to live righteously, to live in right relationship, to actually love one another, this can't be done apart from the spirit. This is what it means to live a spirit-filled life, a life marked by right relationship, a life marked by love, a life transformed continually by the work of the Spirit. What kind of life does this sound like? Does this sound like anyone that we know? The person whose life is most marked by the act of love is that of Jesus. God incarnate, come to earth, the full representation of the love of God. So if Jesus' spirit indwells me, if Jesus' spirit is transforming me, if Jesus' spirit is actually leading and guiding my actions, my footsteps, my decisions, my behaviors, my attitudes, I begin to look like Jesus. My life becomes transformed. My life is shaped by knowing Jesus. And what's so beautiful about this reality is that what's true of Jesus then becomes true of me. Let me say that again. What's true of Jesus, if you know him, becomes true of you. So back to the original question. Who are you? Who am I, you ask? That's what John is trying to say here so many times. Actually, five times in this short passage, he refers to us as children. He opens, and now, dear children, he closes. This is how we know who the children of God are. And three more times in the midst of it, he says, those who know Jesus, those who practice righteousness, are children of God. In John chapter 1, verse 12, it says this, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To believe is to become, to be born again, to be united to Christ, to have a new identity. So if someone asks, who are you? The proper response, according to John, is, I am a child of God. The second question that I think follows with that is, whose am I? If I am a child of God, then who is my father? John 14, 11, it says this from Jesus. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Jesus is saying to be united to me, to become a child of God, 
is to be adopted by the Father, to be adopted into the love of the Father. Jesus' Father becomes my Father. Is the idea of Father painful? Maybe you didn't have the best Father. Maybe you didn't have a Father. Maybe you had a Father that was mean, that was abusive. Maybe you had a father who was awesome, and then one day he left. I know for so many of us, that's such a painful thought. God is my father. Man, my experience of father is anything but love, anything but good. Please tell me God is something other than a father. It's so easy for us to do this, and even natural, right, to project our experience in this life onto God the Father. To say, if this is my experience of Father and that's who you're saying is my Father in heaven, then I don't want any part of that. I'd rather not. But that's not what John is describing here. That's not what we're invited into. This is the act of adoption. God's desire for you, God's pursuit of you in the person of Jesus sending him to this earth, God's continual extension of love to you through the gift of his spirit. For what purpose? To experience love. We are talking about the most perfect picture of adoption that you can imagine. Whose am I? I am the Father's child. Finally, who is my family? 1 John 3, 1, he says this. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. Lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. Friends, this is a family reunion Look around. Seriously, turn your heads. Look to your left and to your right. Maybe you know these people, maybe you don't. But here's what's true. If you know Jesus, then these are your brothers and your sisters in Christ. This is your family. Your best friend might live right next door to you. But if he doesn't know Jesus... You have more in common with the stranger in this room who claims the name of Jesus than you do your best friend next door because you are children of God, adopted into the family of God. Not families of God, family of God. So Sunday mornings are a family reunion. For some of you guys, that's like awesome. Like when Lindsay and I got married, she was an only child and she had dreamed of this idea of going, man, I wanna marry into this big family and she did. And then she was like, what in the world was I thinking? <laughs> These Hendrixes are insane. There's so many of them. They're so loud and so big and so sarcastic. All they want to do is eat, watch movies. Let's go for a hike. But for some of you, that's true, right? You've spent a life kind of being in isolation and going, man, if only I had a big family. Guess what? You have an incredibly massive family. And it starts here. 
For some of you, that's incredibly disappointing, right? You've spent a lifetime going, I know Jesus and I love him and I want him as my savior, but man, I do not want this thing called church. I don't wanna call myself a Christian. I don't wanna say I'm religious. I want Jesus, but man, you guys embarrass me. Church has done some gnarly things in the name of God. I don't want that. I don't wanna to have to explain that to answer for that. If you're anything like me, you're a millennial. It's right now for going, I'm all about this whole spiritual thing and faith and kind of mixing some things together and Jesus, he could be my savior. But I got, I got this killer podcast I listen to on Sunday mornings. It's unbelievable. That's my church. Or even better, if you're a fan of country music, I know Pete bashes on it. I don't get it. It's the best music out there. It really is. There's this song that was hugely popular the last few years by Marin Morris called My Church. Anybody know it? Any, fan? Any country fans? Any? Has, has Pete killed us all? She's got a line in there where she's talking about this idea of driving down the road by herself, top down, sun shining, radio blaring, just classic, legendary country music. And she's going, this is my church. And the first time I heard it, I went, amen, that is amazing. Country is the best. I love you, Baba. But here's the question, is that church? Can't be. Church, by definition, is a family. You can't do church by yourself. You can't. It could be an amazing podcast. It could be the best sermon Pete ever preached. But if you listen to it by yourself, you're not at church. I love you, Marin, but I gotta be honest, what you're talking about is at best an incredibly spiritual experience. Might call that worship. But the line should have been, this is my worship, because it can't be church. Millennials, we can't do church on our own. We don't get to choose who's in and who's out. We don't get to choose the story that's already been written. We don't get to choose the baggage that comes with. We don't get to choose whether or not Crazy Eddie shows up for Christmas in a Winnebago. He's family. And by gosh, if Clark doesn't do a beautiful job of showing him love. I'm taking it with me, Clark, when I leave here next month. Yeah? Glad you're here, Eddie. We don't choose church. We don't choose family. It's something you're born into. It's something you're given. It's something you're handed. And John is saying, I don't care if you don't like them. Jesus says, you're to love one another. Brothers and sisters, we are a family. The last thing I'll say about that whole idea of baggage is this. For so many of us, the temptation is to run, right? How many movies are about somebody running from their identity, from their family, from their history, from their past, changing their name, changing their hair color, changing everything about them to try to run from this? Do they ever change who they are? 
where they come from, who their family is? Can you ever change that? Most of those movies end up with those people coming back around and embracing who they are. Of saying, you know what, my family is messed up. It's not perfect. It may even have caused me a lot of pain, but this is my family. This is blood. This goes deeper than whether or not I like you. There's a reason blood brothers is a term, blood blood sisters is a term. It's deeper than like. The beautiful thing about this process is that it's not up to you to restore the family name. It's not on you to turn it around. It's not on me to be the best Hendrix that's ever been. This is the work of God, restoring, redeeming, transforming through union in Christ and the working out of his spirit in our lives. So I'll close with this. What if this were actually true? What if everything we've talked about this morning, what if this was actually true? What if we actually saw ourselves first and foremost as a child of God? What if looking around this room we said, these are my brothers and sisters in Christ. This is my family, my blood, my name. What if we were known for our love for one another? What if we were known for being those people who maybe met once but then show up on the doorstep and said, you know what, I saw you in church on Sunday and you just look like you could use a friend. How would this impact your life? How would it shape who you are? How would it shape this church? How would it shape this city? I'm going to throw some things out there. I think if this were true, I don't think Linda would ever have to ask for another person to serve in children's ministry. I think if we actually all believe that those are all our children in there, I don't think she would ever have to ask again. I think she would be overwhelmed by the number of people banging down her door all week long saying, Linda, how can I love the children? Because they are my children too. Would we as staff not be overwhelmed if every one of you showed up at the office tomorrow and formed a line and said, I'm ready to serve in the church, I think I would probably have a meltdown. And then I would allow God to restore me and say, all right, let's do this. Let's actually love one another well. How about this? Would anyone in this community ever have to suffer alone again? Would anyone in this community ever have to go hungry again? Would anyone in this community who is new ever go unnoticed? Would we not be people marked by our relationship with Jesus that transforms us to love one another? Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for the gift that
that is prayer, the invitation to converse with you. Thank you for your commands to love one another. Thank you for not inviting us to do this alone, but instead to submit to the power of your spirit to allow you to transform us, redeem us, renew us, and to give us a love for one another that would transform not just each of us individually, but us as a church community, as the family of God. And may that transform the community in which we live. Lord Jesus, we pray these things in your name and through the power that is your Holy Spirit. Amen.